Well, this morning, I'd like to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23 are what we're going to look at today. And while you're turning there, I want to warm you up for this passage uh, with a question for your consideration. We're not going to take a show of hands like we did last week, but I'd just like you to ask yourself this question. Imagine for a moment that you're on a basketball team. Would you rather be the kind of player on that basketball team that when you're on offense, you're left unguarded, or you're the kind of player who gets double teamed? Now, at first, it might seem like a trick question, right? I mean, if, if you're left unguarded, then you would be open most of the time. It would be easier for your team to pass you the ball, easier for you to score. But if you've ever actually played on a basketball team, you know there's only one kind of player that the other team leaves unguarded. It's the player who's not a threat to them, a player who isn't a danger to them. Uh, uh, It's the kind of player who can actually handle the ball and shoot and create assists that the other team guards. And if a player's really good, the other team, uh, the opponents, will have two players guard that player because they're such a threat. Uh, They're the one on the court who is capable of doing significant things uh, that help their team. And in the same way, It's been observed by seasoned Christians that if you're facing uh, opposition in the Christian life, trying to follow Jesus, you're probably doing the right thing. Now, not all the time, right? Sometimes we can be all-stars at getting ourselves into trouble by doing foolish things. But if you're attempting to follow Jesus and you're facing some resistance, you're probably doing the right thing. Uh, The New Testament portrays this resistance that we face while trying to follow Jesus, not just as being double teamed, but as being triple teamed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Satan influences a world system where the majority of people rebel against God, and the way he influences that system is by um, promoting attractive and plausible lies. In turn, that world system that believes those lies Uh, often either tries to tempt and seduce Christians or to discourage and oppress them with persecution. And uh, though what Satan does in the world system and the world system itself are tragic realities, uh, they wouldn't be such a temptation to us if it wasn't for the flesh. Uh, The flesh is the New Testament term for that as yet unsanctified part of of our souls, and the fact is that many of the lies of Satan and many of the allurements of the world are tempting to us precisely because of the flesh, precisely because of our moral and spiritual weaknesses. Along with the Apostle Paul, we experience the predicament of joyfully concurring with the law of God in our hearts, and yet we find that every day we give in in some way that breaks the very law that we celebrate. And so, the question before the house this morning is this, what kind of help does God give us when we're being triple teamed? What kind of help does God give us when we're trying to do the right thing, but we're facing opposition for doing so? Well, to answer that question, we have to look into God's Word. But as we look into God's Word, we have to leave our own predicament and our own issues behind to just value what Matthew has to say to us about three very important uh, fulfillments of prophecy uh, that happened around the birth of Christ. Uh, 
we're going to read in Matthew 2, verses 13 through 23. This is right after the Magi have come to worship the baby Jesus and been warned in a dream by God not to go back to Herod, but to return to their land in the east by another way. And please follow along with me while I read Matthew 2, verses 13 and following. Now, when the Magi had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up. Take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask for your help now in putting on display your glory from this text. Help me to be faithful to what the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to pen for our instruction. I pray that those who hear would be prepared to understand and welcome what is true and to believe these things about you and thereby know you truly and love you more earnestly and follow you more faithfully. Please guard us from the evil one, lead us not into temptation, and send the Holy Spirit to preach a better sermon than the one I've manuscripted. I ask for all this for your glory and for the good of our eternal souls. Amen. Now to this point in his gospel, Matthew has gone to great lengths to communicate that the baby in the manger is Israel's eternal king and long-awaited Messiah. For example, uh, by virtue of his royal genealogy, he is a king as a son of David. He is a king by virtue of his miraculous conception and his miraculous virgin birth, which fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 7, 14. Uh, great Gentile kingmakers have come from the east, and they saw that he was a king. In fact, in Matthew chapter 2, the great irony is that if he wasn't a king, Herod would have no reason to want to kill him. Even his enemies acknowledge and put on display for us to see that he's a king. And last week, we saw that the Magi, who were led by God, acknowledged that the baby wasn't just a king, that he was also somehow God in human flesh and deserving of their worship. They offered him worship that is only appropriate for God alone. Now, the Old Testament contains over 300 prophecies about the Lord's Messiah and what He would do, who He would be, uh, what the circumstances would be around His birth when He came. And in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chooses 
four prophecies from the Old Testament uh, about Messiah. Uh, And these prophecies are so detailed and so complex that they couldn't have just happened by chance. Now, we've already seen one of those prophecies, and that was that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. We saw that last week. But today, we're going to see the last three prophecies in in Matthew 2 that surround the birth and early life uh, of Jesus. And I want to organize, I want to outline our sermon around these three prophecies. The first one is in verses 13 through 15, and they have to do with God calling His Son out of Egypt. Let's look at those verses again. Now, when the Magi had gone away from Joseph, Mary and Jesus, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This is to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son." Now, I like to imagine that the coming of the Magi was a time of great rejoicing for Joseph and Mary and that it, uh, that it fulfilled um, what had been prophesied, that it had fulfilled what their expectations were about uh, this baby, what, everything they had been told. But their rejoicing was short-lived because no sooner had the Magi left uh, than the Lord appeared, uh, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and warned him of imminent danger. And the text conveys a sense of being rushed and frantic. Uh, There's urgency to this angel's command. The construction of the phrase, get up, and the use of the word flee uh, communicate that. I think the only possible improvement that I could offer our translators is after the angel says, get up, I think we need to add a couple more exclamation points. Yeah, I have three of them in there just to emphasize that the angel is serious here. The, the essence of what the angel is saying to Joseph is this, take the child and Mary and flee as fast as you can for as long as you can and don't stop till you get into Egypt. Uh, you're in grave danger. And so Joseph wakes up. Uh, I, I picture him uh, getting Mary up. Maybe Mary was asleep too. Maybe she was in a deep sleep. And I like to picture Joseph kind of rushing around, grabbing everything, getting ready to go in haste, in a hurry. And Mary's, maybe Mary was in a deep sleep. And she's like, what's going on? Why are we, what? Did you have a nightmare? And, and I picture Joseph saying, look, the last time an angel visited, I didn't break off our betrothal. I married you. So I need you to trust me on this one. All right. Now, now let me stop there. Take a time out. Uh, What I just did there, I was trying to use sanctified imagination. I think it is a healthy thing to try and use sanctified imagination when you're reading the narrative, the the historical narrative of Scripture. But we also have to be careful with that kind of imagination to make sure that we're following closely with what the text is communicating. What I just did there, it makes the text a little relatable. I'm I'm glad that uh, I got a laugh out of some of you. But if you take that seriously, there actually is a sense in what, in, in, uh, there's a sense in which what I did there is kind of, it's kind of insulting to Mary. And, and here's the reason I say that. When you read Matthew chapter one and Matthew chapters one and two, which are primarily from Joseph's perspective, and then you go over to Luke one and two, which are primarily from Mary's perspective, what you find in the text is that consistently, Joseph and Mary, whenever they're given commands, they render quick obedience to God. And certainly, quick obedience to God is not the main point of this text. The main point of this text 
is that the Lord's Messiah has come, and He's Jesus of Nazareth, and you need to bow the knee to Him. That's the main point of the text. But I do think it's worth just stopping here and saying a few words about the wisdom of quick obedience. There's a sense in which delayed obedience is disobedience to God and foolishness. And whenever we hear God speak through His Word, it's, it's wise to immediately obey. But that's not just true of direct encounters with God's Word. It's also true of the promptings that come from our conscience, from our redeemed hearts, and from the Holy Spirit guiding us. Allow me to illustrate for just a moment, because this is part of the subjective leading of the Holy Spirit and part of the Christian life. Imagine for a moment that you're facing a very difficult situation, and this situation has all your attention. You're trying to troubleshoot it. You think you've found some kind of answer that might help, and you're, you're diligently working on it, and it has all your attention, and then seemingly out of nowhere, you feel prompted to pray. What should you do? Well, uh, first of all, I don't think you should try to get to the bottom of whether that's your biblically informed conscience or your redeemed heart or the Holy Spirit or all three of them at the same time. That, that's not really important to get to the bottom of, of what's prompting that. But I think you can say this, we, I, we can say this with confidence, the devil probably isn't tempting you to pray right? That's just not what He does. That's not what He tempts people to do. So, you can act with confidence that maybe God is calling you to pray, and maybe the wise thing to do is to pray in that moment. Uh, let me give you another example. Imagine that you're in conflict with someone, and after that, you're, you're having a disagreement, and after the disagreement, you're, you're conflicted in your own soul. And the reason you're conflicted is because you, you probably didn't handle the discussion the way you should have. Maybe you still think that your position is the right position, you were making a point the other person needed to hear, okay, but you, you feel like maybe you went about it the wrong way. Maybe you got uh, not just intense, but you got angry. Maybe you, maybe you said some things in anger you shouldn't have. Or maybe you weren't angry, maybe you were perfectly calm, but you said some things that really were more manipulative than making a godly appeal and trying to persuade the other person. And so, you're, you're conflicted within yourself. What should I do? Should I, should I go and ask for their forgiveness? Well, the world system is not discipling people into asking for forgiveness. The, the world system is not discipling people into ever admitting that you're wrong for anything. And not only that, you know this by experience, your flesh fiercely resists ever humbling yourself to admit that you were wrong. And so, I think, again, in that situation, you can feel confident that if you're feeling prompted that you probably should ask that other person for forgiveness, that's what you should do. And I think in those situations, you can feel confident that that's what God is calling you to do. And I think quick obedience in those situations is the best policy. Uh, in Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2, we see quick obedience on the part of Joseph and Mary uh, in every encounter they have with the Lord and His messengers. And here in our text today, Joseph's quick obedience saves their lives. They make it safely to Egypt, and they're going to return to Israel when the threat is gone. And Matthew tells us, verse 15, that this turn of events, it fulfills what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet uh, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, the prophet who spoke those words is Hosea. Uh, that's in Hosea 11.1. Uh, Hosea, in that context, is looking backward 700 years to the exodus of Israel from Egypt. And Matthew quotes the last half of that verse where Hosea says, out of Egypt I've called my son. Now, I think it's safe to say 
that when Hosea wrote these words, uh, he was speaking about the Exodus looking in the past, and he wasn't looking forward making a prediction or prophecy about Messiah. What he says isn't even messianic. Uh, if you just read Hosea 11.1 1 for yourself alone and you didn't have Matthew's words, you wouldn't interpret it as messianic or a prophecy about the future. So why in the world does Matthew call it a, a, a fulfillment of prophecy here? Well, though Isaiah was not knowingly predicting that Messiah would one day come out of Egypt, Matthew shows us that the return of Jesus from Egypt pictured Israel's, uh, it was pictured by Israel's exodus from Egypt centuries earlier. And here's what's going on. Over and over again in the Old Testament, God calls the nation of Israel His chosen son, lowercase s, and the exodus of his son from Egypt, lowercase s in the Old Testament, pictures the future exodus of his son, uppercase s, from Egypt when he comes into the world. The exodus of the Old Testament then is a type of Jesus returning to Israel out of Egypt. And uh, a type in, in Scripture is a nonverbal prediction. In the Old Testament, it's a person or a place or an event that in some way illustrates the future person and work of the Messiah God would send. Uh, we know uh, that certain people in the Old Testament and certain events pictured what Jesus would come and do. And we know that because the Holy Spirit revealed that to the New Testament authors. And I would hasten to add that we, we call this typology. I would hasten to add that typology isn't just reserved for the New Testament, the Old Testament authors practice it as well. For instance, Isaiah compares the exodus from Egypt, uh, the, the physical exodus from that, to uh, deliverance or salvation from our slavery to sin. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm 95 uses the wilderness wanderings of Israel to illustrate the spiritual hardness of heart that we want to try and avoid. Uh, we know that um, David, in Psalm 110, uses Melchizedek as an illustration of the priestly role that a king should play, even though he's not going to serve as a priest in the temple. And then the New Testament moves on to show us plenty of types of Christ. Uh, for instance, uh, we learn that Joseph, the Joseph in the Old Testament who's the son of uh, Jacob and Rachel, that Joseph is a type of Christ. Uh, we're, it's revealed to us that Jonah being three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster was uh, a, a picture of Christ being three days uh, in, in death after His death, burial, and resurrection. And so, what Matthew is doing is he's identifying a typological fulfillment of God calling His Son out of Egypt. And what he's going to go on, and this is important because what he's going to go on to do in his gospel account is he's going to show that Jesus lived a life that paralleled the events of the life of the nation of Israel, except that when Jesus relived the history of the nation of Israel, He relived it obediently where Israel failed. Let me give you an example. You know that early on in His ministry, he, after He was baptized, the Holy Spirit led Him out into the wilderness, and He was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights being tempted by Satan. 
That was prefigured. Uh, there, there was a foreshadowing of that in the 40 years of wilderness wandering by the Israelites, and they failed miserably. Not only were they being judged by God, they failed super miserably because when it came time for the children of Israel to take the promised land, none of the male children had been circumcised by their parents. They wouldn't even follow the Lord in circumcising their children, right? They were disobedient, but Christ was obedient. And where this connects with us as New Covenant Christians, this is really important. The New Testament goes on after Matthew to then show us that not only was Christ the obedient Son of God where Israel failed, He also was the obedient Son of God where all of us as individuals failed to live under God's rule. We were disobedient sons and daughters, but Jesus came to be an obedient son in our place. And that's an important part of redemption, right? Because in redemption, Christ not only takes our sacrifice, He not only becomes a sacrifice for our sins and takes our penalty on the cross, the righteous life He lived as an obedient son of God is credited to us by faith. And so, this, uh, this type here, this prefiguring of the Exodus account of the nation of Israel from Egypt, uh, it's an important foreshadowing of Christ being an obedient son. Well, after explaining that typological fulfillment, uh, Matthew returns to what Herod did next, verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. And the Greek construction for enraged here is passive, which is very important. What it communicates is that um, Herod had completely lost control. His anger was controlling him. His anger was in the driver's seat of his decision-making. He was just a passive passenger, right? Um, And so, in a fit of rage, he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem. And Herod's evil act, it's made even more evil by the fact that the motive behind doing it is that he wanted to kill the Lord's Messiah. And the children who were murdered there, they become then the first casualties in a great war between the kingdom of this world and God's anointed servant. Herod here is a scary precursor uh, to the Antichrist and the war he'll wage in the future against God's people. Now, the least thing that Herod intended to do was to fulfill prophecy, but Matthew tells us that that's what his cruel act did. Matthew quotes Jeremiah's words from Jeremiah 31, verse 15, and these words of Jeremiah, they're another typological fulfillment, just like the fulfillment of Hosea. When Jeremiah originally spoke these words, he was referring to the deportation of God's people to Babylon. He was referring to the Babylonian captivity. The Babylonians after they had uh, consolidated their victory over Judah, they took the Jewish captives to Ramah and used Ramah as a staging point before the journey that would take them back to Babylon. And when the uh, Babylonians invaded Judah, uh, there were children who died of starvation and by the sword or who were taken into captivity. And that incident becomes a type prefiguring, uh, foreshadowing the mourning that would take place 
when Herod murdered the children of Bethlehem. Uh, Rachel becomes a symbol for the mothers uh, of Israel. Rama is a symbol for the deportation of the sons and daughters of Israel. But there's something more going on in this fulfillment, and I'm going to bring this up. It's important for me to bring up because this is an, it's an important point in how we interpret uh, and how we rightly divide the New Testament Scriptures. First century Jews didn't have an Old Testament full of numbers divided up into chapters and verses like we do. And so, when they wanted to refer to something in the Old Testament, if you don't have, a, if you don't have numbers as an address, what do you do? Well, what they would do is they would choose the most significant element in that portion of Scripture. For instance, we see Jesus do this when He's in verbal combat with the Sadducees. He wants to refer to what we would call Exodus 3, and He calls it, uh, quote, the passage about the burning bush, because the burning bush is the incident in, in Exodus 3. The Jews would refer to Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is one of our favorites. They called it the shepherd's psalm because it's about God, our, our Lord, being a good shepherd. When Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those, that's a verbatim quote of the first verse of Psalm 22, and Psalm 22 is all about the agony that this servant of the Lord goes through as he's surrounded by wicked people that want to kill him, and they cast lots for his clothing, and it's, it's, uh, it's actually messianic prophecy about the sacrifice of, of Messiah. And, and the, the psalm, Psalm 22, is just absolutely full of agony and suffering and horrible darkness, but at the end, if you read the last paragraph of it, it's about the victory of God's servant after he endures the hostility of those sinners who want to kill him. And when our Lord quoted that on the cross, he wasn't, just, uh, he wasn't just giving vent to his agony. What he was doing is quoting the first verse of a psalm that pointed to the very treatment he would receive but also uh, he was giving a, a prophecy of his victory once his work on the cross was done. And that's very important for interpreting our Lord's words on the cross, but it's also very important for interpreting these passages where New Testament authors are quoting an Old Testament text. Because when they quote an Old Testament text, you're not, they're not just quoting, they're not just wanting you to understand the one verse they're quoting they're importing the meaning of that whole passage into that moment. And they're just quoting that one verse to kind of let you know the idea they're getting across. Um, so, with that in mind, listen to the rest of what Jeremiah says in the verses following the one that Matthew quotes. Thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children will return to their own country. Even though the verse that Matthew quotes is full of grief and loss and heartbreak, there's still hope on the horizon. That's what that passage in Jeremiah was about. Within a couple of generations, the children of Israel would return from Babylon. And we know if you just take what we know about the Bible and then you apply the, the promises of God. If you take the promises of God and you apply them to the slaughter of the innocents, what do we know? Well, we know that those parents who were faithful worshipers of God, that in time, when their life came to an end, they would be reunited with their sons, 
that they were parted from because of Herod's uh, cruelty. They would be reunited and reconciled in glory with the children they had lost. And so this second typological fulfillment, it points to great grief and mourning and, and the enemies of God having murderous intent, but it also points to hope. It points to hope in God's promises for the future. And then the final prophecy that Matthew mentions here in chapter 2, it relates to Jesus uh, growing up in Nazareth. Look again at verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Egypt, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. When Herod died, the greatest immediate threat to the child was eliminated. Earlier, the, the angel had told Joseph to stay in Egypt until those, plural, who seek his life are dead. So apparently, there was more people than just Joseph, I'm uh, sorry, more people than just Herod who were willing to go along with Herod's plan. Um, there must have been others who approved of it as well. Uh, but the Lord uh, saved the child from that, and he brought that plot to an end. And so Joseph obeyed, and he returned to the land of Egypt. Now, when Herod died, Rome had his kingdom divided three ways amongst his sons. Uh, Herod Archelaus ruled over Samaria, Judea, and Idumea. Uh, Herod, uh, Herod Philip II ruled over the area north of Galilee. We might consider it like Lebanon and Syria. And then Herod Antipas ruled over the Galilee and Perea. And when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, he was afraid to go there, and Joseph had good reason. Because in the case of Archelaus, the, the saying, like father, like son, was an apt one. Uh, Archelaus was uh, a, a violent man. Um, he, was, he was a very paranoid man. In fact, he ended up being a, a violent, inept rule, uh, ruler, and Rome, excuse me, <clears throat> Uh, Rome eventually replaced him, and when they replaced him, you know what they did? They set up a governorship, and the fifth governor they appointed after they got rid of Archelaus, the fifth governor they appointed was Pontius Pilate, so that sets us up for the rest of the New Testament, but the point is, uh, Joseph had good reason. He was being discerning. He was being wise when he saw that uh, Archelaus was reigning on the throne, and so God confirmed to Joseph that it was wise to be concerned about that, and he warned him in a dream not to settle in the area that Archelaus, so I couldn't help it, uh, that Archelaus controlled. Instead, Joseph moved the family to Nazareth. Herod Antipas controlled Nazareth. He wasn't a good man, but he was a capable ruler. And later on in the gospel accounts, he's going to be the one who has John the Baptist beheaded and uh, who also questions Jesus uh, on the eve of his crucifixion. And so, in God's providence, Joseph didn't just move the family to Nazareth for the sake of safety. Uh, God's hand moved Joseph there to fulfill a prophecy, a prophecy that Jesus would be called the Nazarene. Matthew says this prophecy was spoken by the prophets, plural, but if you go and you search the prophets, one of the things you'll find is you're not going to be able to find the phrase 
that he shall be called the Nazarene or the Lord's servant, the Lord's Messiah will be a Nazarene. You can't find any of that terminology when you look at the prophets. In fact, if you then go and you study history, you find out that Nazareth didn't even exist as a town in Old Testament times to have this prophecy. So, again, what in the world is Matthew doing here? Well, some people hear it and they think Nazarene, Nazarite, maybe it has to do with the Nazarite vow, and that, that's, those are actually two different words. They're, they're similar, but they're two different words in Hebrew. Uh, other people look at it and they say, well, th- there's a word in Hebrew that's very closely related in its root to Nazarite. That's the Hebrew word for branch, and there's these prophecies in Isaiah where Messiah is compared to a branch, and so maybe it's like, maybe Matthew's calling him branch man, and it's a reference back to the Old Testament and that. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't, I don't think that's close enough. Uh, here, here is how I believe we should understand this. Nazareth was in the north of Israel in the region of Galilee, and it was the town in Galilee that housed the Roman garrison. So, do you think Jews wanted to live in that town? No, it was not a a place Jews wanted to be from. Now, there were Jews, we know that there were Jews who lived in that town. They had a synagogue. There were Jewish people who lived there. But the point is, it wasn't a town you wanted to be from. It wasn't a reputable reputable place in Jewish society. And so, later on, when uh, when Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? He's not being rude. He's just putting on display the sentiment of the Jews at the time. Nathaniel was shocked that the hometown that the Lord's Messiah would grow up in would be such a disreputable place. Who would have dreamed that Messiah would grow up in Nazareth? Like, who's writing this story? That's not at all what we expected. And what that all points to then, what that fulfillment points to is this, right? That the Lord's Messiah will be despised and forsaken of men. We'll esteem Him not and we won't esteem the hometown that he's from, right? He, he had no stately form or appearance that we should look on him, right? He's not going to be, he's going to be despised and forsaken and rejected, and he's going to be from a despised, disreputable hometown. I believe that's what Matthew is pointing at. Now, I will stop here to confess, I believe that this prophecy that Matthew talks about, this is the hardest one to interpret in all of Matthew's gospel, in my opinion. This is, this is a difficult one, uh, but I think that what Matthew is communicating is this. Look, if you would just go back and you would read what the prophets say about the Messiah who is to come, you would have to conclude that he's not going to be uh, from a hometown that people esteem. He's going to be from a disreputable place that people reject because he himself will be despised and rejected of men. Um, he'll be, that's just part of the divine plan. That's part of what he took on for you and me. He was willing to take on being despised and rejected for our salvation. And so, when you look at, at these three prophecies, um, what you, and you get to the bottom of their meaning, and not just how they were fulfilled, but how they connect with biblical truth, what you find is this. Jesus lived the righteous life that Old Testament Israel and you and I ought to have lived, and He lived it in our place so that by faith His righteousness could be credited to us. We learn also that we will face grief and the shadow of death in this life, especially if we attempt to follow Jesus, but there is hope in the middle of that grief. Uh, That grief won't be the end of our story. 
And then we also learn that Jesus was willing to take on being rejected and despised by men, and even later on being punished by the Father in our place. And I would just hasten to add with the fulfillment about Nazareth, we know for sure that He had to be from Galilee explicitly. That's not typological. It's clear in Isaiah chapter 9, He had to be from the region of Galilee to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 9. Well, so now that we've gotten to the bottom of understanding these prophecies, which I admit they're a little bit harder, they're not as straightforward because they're typological fulfillments, now that we've gotten to the bottom of those, I want to go back to the beginning of the sermon and answer the question, what help do we get when we're trying to follow Jesus and we face difficulty? What kind of help does God give us? And I believe there's two answers that we get to that question from this passage. First of all, the first answer is this. When we face difficulty while trying to do the right thing, we are promised that God is working out His good, and I emphasize good, purposes. He's working out a good plan. Let me explain. When you look at the danger that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus faced in this chapter, was God absent? Did they face that danger all, all alone? They were just left to their own devices. No, absolutely not. God sends an angel to warn them about the murderous intent of Herod. God, um, <clears throat> God sends, uh, God, God uh, comes and He affirms that Joseph has good reason to be concerned about Archelaus. God is in this passage working to guide His people and to protect them. And the New Testament promises that He does the same for us who follow Christ, He does the same for us through the subtle workings of His providence. I I think most of us aren't getting visited by angels, but God is still using providence to guide the stories of our lives and to protect us from spiritual danger first and foremost, but often physical dangers as well. But that first answer that, well, God is still in it, you can be confident God's in it and He's working out a good plan and, and He'll take care of you, that's a good answer but that doesn't go far enough. Because the fact is, when we face difficulty, God is not only protecting and guiding us, He is even using His opponents as tools to accomplish His will. What Herod did was evil, but God used it to get His son down to Egypt so that He could relive the life of Israel, but live it, relive that history as an obedient son. Archelaus was a wicked man, but his presence on the throne of Judea led Joseph to move away from plan A, which was settling in Judea, and to go settle up in Nazareth, which is a direct fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that he had to be from Galilee, and also it was a typological fulfillment of him being from a despised, disreputable hometown. And so, over and over and over again in the Bible, we see that God's enemies are not thwarting His plan. God actually uses His enemies as tools to accomplish His plan. So, when we face opposition, far from it being our undoing, it often is a setup for God accomplishing His work through us and also in us, Uh, which leads me to remind you, as I often have from this pulpit, about the importance of the doctrine that we believe in, the doctrine of uncomfortable grace, right? We often pray for and desire uh, the grace of release and relief from our troubles, and God one day will give us that in the life to come. But in this life, the need of the moment is your sanctification. 
And so God will often allow you to go through uncomfortable circumstances to strengthen and refine your faith. Peter explains it this way, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead.'" to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. We have a great salvation, but now listen to the way that Peter describes our experience of the Christian life in the here and now. Listen, listen to the way he describes what we experience while following Jesus in this world. In this great salvation, you you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Peter looks at the present life and what it's like to follow Christ, the three words he uses to, to sum it up are distressed, trials, and tested. If you're going to follow Jesus in this life and do anything significant for Him, you're going to face distress and grief, you're going to face trials and opposition, uh, and your faith is going to be tested. It's going to feel like, at times, it will feel like you're being triple teamed. But the difficulty, according to Peter, is temporary, and it also has a good purpose behind it. And Peter illustrates God's purpose with a picture from the physical world that pictures what God is doing with our souls in the spiritual realm. The picture is of refining gold. When a miner finds a nugget of gold, he finds it in its ore state. It's mixed with trace, uh, 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 other trace elements are in the sample. And metals in their ore state, um, they're not very usable. The imperfection of or robs the metal of its strength and its beauty. For instance, if you want to build something with iron, you have to temper it before you use it or it won't be strong enough to bear the weight of what you're building. Uh, If you want to create jewelry out of gold, you can't use gold in its ore state because it's not beautiful. It has to be refined. And when you first came to Christ, you're like that piece of ore. There are still trace elements of the flesh in you that rob you of your spiritual beauty. Uh, There are still trace elements of the flesh that rob you uh, uh, not only of your beauty, but also uh, uh, pollute your faith. And so, in His love, the divine metallurgist will boil you. He, He will deliberately, like a coach, draw up game plans where He knows ahead of time the defense will respond by double teaming you And he calls the play anyway because he knows it'll be good for you as an experience to go through. It'll strengthen you and make you a better player in the end. God will take you through experiences that you never intended to have in order to produce in your character what you can't produce on your own. In ancient times, when a goldsmith refined gold, he would, uh, the, the impurities would float to the top, and then he would skim those impurities off. And the question is, well, if you're a goldsmith, how do you know when the gold has been refined enough? How, how do you know when it's ready to be used as something beautiful? And the goldsmith knew that the gold had been sufficiently refined when he could look down into that molten gold and see his reflection in it. 
And I love that. I, I just love that as a picture of what God's doing with us. He refines us until He can see the reflection of His moral character in us. And so, what kind of help does God give us when we face difficulty while trying to follow Jesus? Well, He gives us the assurance uh, that He is using the difficulty in our lives for good purposes, and that even our enemies are being used by Him to refine and strengthen our faith. Let's pray.